This week, I had the great joy of sitting down with someone I have stalked on Facebook for a long time. I've read all of his blogs, although we have never actually met. Brett Fish Anderson lives in Cape Town and is a voice for justice and reconciliation here in South Africa. I love his energy and his passion, as well as his authenticity and the honesty with which he shares his own story. Once again, we did this interview over Skype, and so between South African internet and Skype, the audio is not what I wish it was, but I really loved my conversation with Brett, and I hope that you do too. We talked about racism and white privilege and Black Lives Matter and xenophobia and violence against women, and how do we respond to all of that in this crazy world that we live in? Welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Brett Fish Anderson, welcome to the podcast. It really is great to have you here. Yeah, so good. As, as we were just saying off air, we've known of each other probably for decades even, and this is likely the first time we're meeting or the first time we're having a proper conversation. I think so. so. Uh, the first time I heard your name, my boys had gone to summer camp or winter camp or one of those, and you were the speaker, and they came home raving. Oh, wow. And um, since that time, I've followed your stuff. I've read a lot of your stuff, and so it's great to have you here. And first, when I... When I first started thinking about doing interviews on this podcast, you were very high on my list. So oh, wow. sure. I appreciate you doing it. No, yeah, absolutely. Thank great. you. I think you have a lot to say into South Africa, but into the world around some of these issues. But before we get to all that, tell us who you are. Um, humanize yourself <laughs> a little bit. Where do you come from? Who are you? So I am 45 years old um, and hold very strongly to the idea that age is just a number and refuse to properly grow up. Um, the older you get, the more you hold on to that, yes. I know. My, my parents are, are nearing 80 and claiming that 80 is not old. And, yes. and I think when I was young, 30 felt like the end. Exactly. <laughs> so it's interesting to see how that plays out. But um, I think it's a key part of who I am. It's it's kind of a, a subtle thing of, of not choosing to grow up, but just trying to kind of maintain that youthful optimism and belief and hope that I think a lot of adults kind of lose. I actually had a, an interaction with a pastor when I was working at a church who called me into his office and said, one day when you are older and you fall into the rut of life, you'll be like me. And yo, I, I don't know if I said it in my head or out loud, but, but there was this response of I'd rather die. I think the message I was being given was that this this passion that you have, this this hope, this wanting to change the world is is a phase you're going through because you're young, and and that will die out as it does with so many adults. And so I think part of the maybe that challenged me to be who I am today. But it was like if I ever become someone that gives up, that just is in something called the rut of life. If I stop living, if I am ever existing, then then I would rather die. So so I think that's a core kind of role in terms of who I am. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad is a pastor and I made some kind of commitment age five to follow Jesus. 
And it was around the end of school, um, we used to call it Standard 9 back in the day, grade 11, where I made a commitment to follow Jesus. And that has never waned. Um, it obviously has roller coasted. Um, they've been, and, and not to say that I became perfect or, or great person or anything like that, but, but at the core of my being is a commitment to follow Jesus. And the last five years in particular, and we'll get onto that, have been largely hard as I've focused more on justice and race in South Africa. And so much of my Christianity, churchianity has been stripped away. But the, the one thing that, that is never letting go, I think, is Jesus. Um, the person, the, the godness, the character, the words of Jesus, I am completely in love with and completely think are worth following with my core of my being till the end. And so that keeps me going. So I think that's a big part. Another, I, I just kind of made, made notes in terms of just trying to understand what would be helpful. And I've got just three things that I think will kind of give you an overview of who I am, um, unless I've already said too much. Um, one of them is, is, I think it was when I was in college days, I started a thing called Thought for the Week, which was basically an email message to um, some friends of mine challenged, challenging them about things in the Bible. Um, this is something I found out this week. This is something I learned or was challenged by, and basically through Hotmail. And I think I'm the only person in the world today who still uses Hotmail. Um, but my email list grew, and I used to, um, just any any kind of way of getting people onto the list, I would, and it grew to um, about eventually about 3,500 subscribers. And not to say that I think 3,500 people are reading them every week, but it's just an opportunity to, to just challenge people. It became a weekly thing. Um, I spell thought T-H-O-R-T, to the absolute um, disgrace of my uncle in England. Um, he, he, I think if I could change that, it would make his life. But I went for a phonetic thing that's slightly different, and, and maybe that categorizes a bit of who I am as well, just in terms of, of not kind of always falling in with the norms of being the guy on the edge, challenging, questioning, and asking questions. And so when Facebook came along, um, I kind of moved on from, from Hotmail to Facebook, and I really categorize it as that verse um, that Paul speaks about in Corinthians of, of becoming all things to all people in order to win some. Um, and so for me, it was a sense of, of what can I use to share something that has been good news to me that I think is good news to the world? What, what means can I use to get it to them? And so I use social media very actively, mostly Facebook, but also Twitter, YouTube, whatever I can. And, and my life is comprised of kind of two components. The one is kind of just talking about God, sharing things of God, justice, things like that. And then the other side is, is using comedy, using humor, using my inherent weirdness to just try and attract people, to draw a crowd with the aim again of just being able to share something that I think is really good news. And so the other side of that would be um, my improv group. So I'm part of an improv group. We were called Theater Sports in 1999 when I joined, which seems like a lifetime ago. And so it was really exciting to realize this year that with a few years I was overseas for a bit, so I skipped a bit, but it's been about 20 years of doing improv. And we're now called Impro Guys, G-U-I-S-E. And we are Cape Town's longest running show. And we are busy doing pop-up shows at the moment, so we don't have a weekly show. We just do runs here and there. And the heart of improv is 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 making things up on the spot. So getting up, getting a scenario, and, and just going for it. I was never particularly good at acting I think because I hated rehearsing um, and so the idea of actually just getting up on stage and also because I work best I think when interacting with an audience so I play off an audience whether it's comedy whether it's talking about God I, I, I have kind of a back and forth 
engagement with the audience. And I think that's a bit of my persona as well. Just just trying to not be not be the, the holy man of God on a pedestal, but just being some guy on the stage, often with a stuffed dolphin or really weird hair. And the hope that is, if people can see that and walk away feeling challenged, it's not going to be attributed to me. Um, but hopefully it will be attributed to actually God did something or the words that were spoken were serious because it seriously couldn't have been that weirdo. Um, and so that's the second one. And then just currently I'm involved in an organization called Heartlines and they've been doing kind of theme or values-based work in the country for, for over 10 years. And currently we've got a program called What's Your Story? And it works specifically in the area of race. So just trying to get people of different races together to share stories with each other. And somebody decided that they'd employ me to do it. So it was something where my heart and passion was. And then someone was like, we'll give you money to do this. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's a hard one. Um, and so, yeah, so my life at the moment comprises in setting up facilitations and storytelling sessions, and then quite a lot of flexi time. So a lot of time on social media, um, just trying to challenge people to live better in kind of all areas of life and specifically, I guess, um, linked to justice and linked to Jesus. That's great. So tell us the story. So you're born mid-1970s yeah. as a white male in South Africa yeah. in, a, in a Christian setting. How do you get from there and to where you are today? What was the journey that led you into justice and some of these issues that we're facing? Yeah, so slowly, I think would be a good answer and a, and a shameful one. I don't like to be someone that lives with regret because we can't change the past. But I do like to be motivi motivated by looking back and seeing where things were wrong and where I could have done better and hopefully helping others to do the same. And so the question of particularly kind of justice where it relates to race for me is such a, it feels like such a contradictory one in my life. Um, and I'll, I'll see if I can explain it well. My parents are are people that I don't, I don't think race was ever an issue for them. I think they loved and saw people equally. Um, my dad spent one night in jail for a march against apartheid. So he, he wasn't really one of the big struggle <laughs> kind of things. But, but I think for me, the fact that, that they did something, that they lived counterculture, that they, they, they had a different ethos was, was really helpful. I think it's hard to look back and, and think your parents did nothing or, um, we're just silent and complicit. So that's the one side of things. The other side of things is that my mom is British, my dad's mom is British, and, and I think there's a sense of that British, especially the generation and the generation before, of children must be seen and not heard, um, do this because I said so. And so we didn't get a lot of explanation, which which for me has been quite sad. Like we, we were living a better and a different life in many aspects, but never understood why. So we were never taught to to mentally to challenge um, the ideas. Like I, I found out who Nelson Mandela was when I was in matric, which um, was the year that he was released. And so for me, that is a pity. And I think it is it can be largely contributed to generation and stuff. And so I was really passionate about God from a young age. I was involved in youth ministry. I... Um, challenged my church on a number of things I was often the guy who would be the voice a lot of people were grumbling about a thing and I'd be the guy that would stand up and say something and then suddenly the crowds would have dispersed and I end up being there by myself and and that's felt like kind of a common theme throughout my life but it was 
back in the day when I think the church's highest aim was that kids shouldn't have sex with each other. And, and that was it. I mean, I think like, try be good, don't steal, rob, kill people. And so even in my church history, to its shame, like there wasn't a sense of, of the justice of, of what was going in, in, on, on in the country and how we needed to be better. And I think when I talk about the blurred lines, another area I was very involved in Scripture Union. And I think Scripture Union, looking back, I don't really know how they got away with it. But when I think of my SU camping days, we did camps, we did holiday clubs, we did beach missions. The team of leaders that I was always on or under were completely diverse. Some of the most incredible people I know. And so in a lot of my spaces growing up, I had diversity around me. And so it seemed like this is the way it is. This is the natural thing. And yet, obviously, it was so counter to what was going on in the world. So there's a giant disconnect there. And fast forward um, to, what was it, about nine years ago, uh, my wife Valerie and myself, we went across to America to live and work in a community called The Simple Way. Some some of your listeners may know Shane Claiborne, the book The Irresistible Revolution, and that was a book that really challenged me a lot. Um, I spoke about that 1 Corinthians passage. The other passage that I love, and I'll, I'll just read a few because it's so beautiful, is that one in Acts 2, which says, um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So when I was, in, I was living in Stellenbosch before we went overseas and just before I got married and we celebrated 10 years this year, so 10 years ago, I was living in the suburbs of Stellenbosch on the back of someone's house, kind of a granny flat thing. And I didn't know any of my neighbors, um, except the people across the street were part of a church team. So I knew them by association. But for me, it just felt like these high walls, these big gates, you, there's no sense of community. And that scripture, particularly, like they lived together, they were in each other's space. They, and just while they were doing the things of following Jesus, People were added daily to their number. There are no missions. There's no EE program. There's no knocking on doors. It's just like they were being the church. They were loving Jesus, and it was so attractive that everyone wanted to get a piece of it. And so that that passage has wrecked my life, inspired my life, challenged me. Um, and so I actually ended up moving into a local township, Kaimandi, for 18 months, um, which probably sounds quite glamorous. But unfortunately, um, and fortunately, this is a fortunately, unfortunately, um, I met my wife Valerie during that time and she lived in Cape Town. And so I spent a lot of time in Cape Town um, and not in the township. So there, there was a sense of, of, of the goodness of being in the space and connection with people. But I was very distracted, obviously, um, and that turned out well. So I, I'm not... I'm not too sad about that. But anyway, so there was this sense of, of disconnect with community and trying to figure out, like, what does community look like? So we went to the States. We lived in that community. That is a whole other podcast on itself. Um, it was very challenging for us. Um, it, yeah, there was a lot of good that came out of it in our lives for us, but it was also a really hard time. But one of the things I think we learned, and we were basically living in a, a low economy um, in a city space in Philadelphia and the kind of space that when you went into the city people ask where you stay you say Philadelphia they're like but you're white um, so one of those neighborhoods gunshots every night um, I think three people were killed on the streets around us while we lived there that year and so we were there for 18 months and then we were in a place called Oakland which is near San Fr um, near California in California 
near San Francisco, um, on the other side of the coast. Um, so he spent three years in America, and during that time, um, the whole incident with Trayvon Martin happened, Eric Garner, a whole list of names of, of black people, particularly black men a lot of the time, but there were a lot of black people, people of color that were killed, and largely by police officers, um, in a number of incidents that at one stage felt like one every week. And I think it was interesting for me, looking back when I, when I try to understand it, I think it was this idea of being an outsider, looking in at a story that resonated so much with South Africa. Race, the race story in America is so different to South Africa, but there's so many overlaps. And so looking at how America was being challenged and overthrown and, and, and how issues of race were becoming center point, people were marching, people were protesting, people were writing about stuff, really got me thinking. Um, and I'm typically... I would describe myself as, as kind of lazy or uninterested. So if I'm interested in a topic, I'll find a blog post and read one and think, oh, cool, I've got it. Maybe skim it, not even read it. And when when Black Lives Matter stuff started happening, I just found that I'd read an article and there'd be three links at the bottom and I'd read all of those and then just get to this, into this rabbit hole of, of just being so consumed by the passion and the compassion. Um, linked to that particular topic and so it was like something I'd never had before kind of a passion that was equal to my passion in Jesus and Christianity um, I guess but on a topic that was kind of outside of the church and the people that I was reading in America just ended up being largely African-American women um, white people saying nothing about it or hardly anything about it there were some white women um, Rachel Holt Evans Sarah Bessie from Canada who were speaking into it and so largely women but in particular um, African-American women people like Carol Cleveland and Austin Channing Brown and and so just like when I when we moved back to South Africa after three years um, and it was always like we were going across to do something we have originally went for 18 months it got extended but we we're always coming back to South Africa I came back with the belief that I can't I can't live in South Africa and not be passionately engaged with things as, as far as they concern race. And seeing that as, as such an integral part of my Christianity and people are often in the place of trying to separate the two. There's, there's Christianity, there's the gospel message, and then there's this thing called social justice. And people in the church often speak about social justice quite disparagingly. I had a fight with a pastor online a couple of months ago from a main big church in Cape Town who basically made a speech and then said it as a status saying something along the lines of looking after the poor and things like that were byproducts of the gospel. And for me, like a basic reading of the gospel, the greatest command, love God with everything, but also love your neighbor as yourself. You can't, you can't love your neighbor as yourself and then be okay that your neighbor who doesn't look like you is living in a completely unjust and maligned and pushed to the side kind of circumstance. So that was, that was the big motivation for me. And over the last five years, there's been a sense of, I need to read a lot. I need to speak to people. I need to learn a lot. I I don't know anything about my country's history beyond the apartheid history that I was fed. Um, and so that really kind of got me on the journey. If I can say one more thing, early on when we came back, we were super privileged to be able to go to Robben Island, which I'd never visited, and spend a weekend there with a friend of ours, Renee August, who led a retreat with 30 young upcoming leaders and me. <laughs> and and we got to kind of do the tour beyond the tour. So, so the tourists get 
kind of certain stuff, we got to really just go a little bit deeper. And when I left the island, I grabbed the book, How Can Man Die Better?, which is the story of Robert Sabukwe, who was a name that I knew, but knew nothing about. Um, and reading that book really started my journey of understanding a history of South Africa that I don't know, seeing it from different eyes, different perspective. And that compiled with um, Steve Biko's I Write What I Like Today, is the anniversary of his death. Um, like those two books, if you are interested in transformation in South Africa and you haven't read either or both of those books, then I think you are fooling yourself. Um, but that that's kind of like an overview of, of the journey that, that got me to where I am. That's fantastic. So about a year ago, we were in the same room, although we still didn't meet. Um, I was at the Justice Conference and you were one of the speakers. And you were a part of a session around white privilege. And I think it's one of those subjects we don't want to talk about as white people, that we get very offended by even when the word is used. What do you see? What is white privilege and how are, how are we kind of affected by it as white people, whether you're in South Africa or the States or wherever you are? Yeah, I think one of the one of the biggest problems with white privilege is that people hear different things. And so people that I fight with about white privilege, they will be like, no, it's not a thing. It's not a thing. If we can get past the arguments and if we can sit down and they can explain what they understand by white privilege and I can explain what I mean by white privilege then I find majority of the time we end up on the same page. And so it's one of those things, it's like the word feminism, like a lot of people have had negative examples, negative experiences, and so just everything is thrown out. And so when you talk about white privilege, probably two of the biggest ones are, are you saying I didn't work hard for what I got? And um, I was poor when I grew up, and so I didn't have white privilege. And for me, probably one of the, the easiest and, and clearest definitions is, just that I see white privilege as benefits and opportunities obtained merely by the fact that I have white skin. And so it's not earned, um, but, but opportunities, networks. Um, and so when, if I think also, again, maybe an easier way to pack it. If you take a black person and a white person in South Africa, even today, but especially 10, 20 years ago, and you took everything away from them, um, then what? how easy would it be for them to kind of get back on their feet? And so it talks about opportunities. It talks about access. And so like a, white, a poor white person will have access to bank loans a lot easier than a black person. And so there's a thing of suspicion as well. So white people are, sus are less suspected than, than black people. So we get away with people assuming our intentions are good, assuming we can do stuff, assuming our intelligence, assuming we'll pay stuff back. And so it's just like the road ahead for us becomes easier, not, not because we, whether we've worked hard or not, there's opportunities and access and it's easier to get ahead, um, more easy to get ahead than it is for a black person. And then the other side of it is when we talk about white privilege, a lot of people think, oh, you want me to feel bad, you want me to feel guilty. And I read an exciting quote this morning on Facebook that I'd like to read to you, if that's okay. Uh, my friend Sean DeToy posted this. It's a guy called Eric Reitan. And I think this speaks really helpfully to people that are, are scared or worried by this idea of white privilege. It says this. It's a fairly long quote. Those who experience privilege did not choose to be born into the class that society advantages through systemic forces, and they did not create those forces that advantage them. 
Furthermore, they have limited power as individuals to change society and so are unlikely on their own to be able to divest themselves of their privilege. This means that having privilege is not something anyone should feel guilty about. You can't help it. While there are some advantages you can cast off, you can't remove the social forces that give people in your class a systemic advantage. So acknowledging privilege is not about feeling guilty or about casting blame. It is first and foremost about recognizing an inequity in the social structure and then about making a commitment to working for change as one's life situation allows and recognizing that having a particular kind of privilege may allow one to work for greater equity, work for a society in which one no longer experiences this privilege in ways that those who lack this privilege can't. So that's a guy called Eric Wrighton. And I think another analogy, I mean, I've got a couple of analogies that for me make it really, really simple. The one is if I think of somebody in a wheelchair, um, if they have a meeting in town, um, if I have a meeting in town, I never have to worry that I can't get to the meeting. But a friend of mine in a wheelchair gets to a building, the meeting's on level 24, they don't have wheel access. There's a sense of um, I've got greater access than he does. So I've got able-bodied privilege. And I don't have to feel guilty about that. I don't have to to work it off or whatever. But what I can do in that situation is I can lobby that this building can put things in place that can make it wheelchair friendly for him. I can perhaps go into the meeting on his behalf while he can't get there. There's certain ways that I can use my privilege to help those who don't have the same privilege. So that's one example. The other one for me that is huge is the idea of movies. And I think it's sad that in 2019, it's still largely true. But if we if we picture like 10 years ago, I think it was even more true, that when I grew up, I could go watch movies and I could be a pilot, I could be a president, I could be the leader of the, the, the troops, I could be the scientist, I could be the doctor, I could be the love interest, I could be the hero. I could see someone on, on the screen like me in any imaginable role and so ridiculous that I could watch a movie and see myself represented as Jesus because Jesus was always a white man. Whereas if a black person was watching a movie 10 years ago, largely today, they could typically only see themselves as either the bad guy or the help. And the help is varying degrees from the person who cleans your house or the gardener all the way down to servant or to slave. And if you have a third category, maybe the third guy who gets killed off in a slasher movie, the token black friend. But this works for, for black people, for, for people of color, for people of disadvantage that, that typically roles in movies were given to white people. And um, I don't know that we can, as white people, really understand that because we never, we never watched things and, didn't, and weren't able to see ourselves in them. Um, another example is dolls growing up. All the Barbies, all the Kens, all the dolls tended to be white. And so it doesn't seem like a big deal. I played, I didn't really play with dolls, but um, if I had played with a G.I. Joe growing up or whatever, like chances are it looks like me. I can see myself in that. And then you've got young black kids, young colored kids, Indian kids that, that are playing with dolls that look nothing like them. And, and those little analogies or little things, when you start adding them up, the fact that if you get a plaster, you hurt yourself, you need a band-aid, a plaster, and the one that says skin color looks like my skin. It doesn't look like my black friend's skin or my Indian friend's skin. The white crayon or the skin color crayon, again, looks a little bit peach and not black. Or, and so these things are everywhere. Um, and if you live in a society which is constantly suggesting to you that, that white is better, that black and other colors are, are somehow less than, that white became the standard for beauty, like literally it's just everywhere and all around us. And so, yeah, privilege for me is an easy one to chat to. And I think if we chat long enough, even with people that disagree, we'll find spaces where we can go, oh, okay, I get it. It's not just about feeling guilty or feeling bad. 
a, a white person that's had nothing their whole lives, that grew up in, in a shack somewhere, there's still opportunities they have. There's still access they have that black people are not going to have the same thing to you. And even if it's just a lack of suspicion, my favorite or least favorite is neighborhood WhatsApp groups, neighborhood watch WhatsApp groups that have um, BM, BC, black colored male, whatever. They have like secret codes for, for black colored in KwaZulu-Natal, possibly Indian. But I've yet to hear of a neighborhood WhatsApp group that has a, a dedication to a white person because white people can't be suspicious. White people always belong. And so even in neighborhood watch WhatsApp groups, um, there's this sense of privilege. If I'm a white person, I'm never going to have a whole group of people, some of them armed and some of them really scary, stopping to ask me if I belong in the neighborhood. So, so how do we as white people kind of educate ourselves around these things. I remember you mentioned the Black Lives Matters movement. And I remember when it happened, the immediate response of so many people was, no, all lives matter. And it's like you're not listening, you know, you're not hearing the pain because our privilege kind of keeps us from really hearing where that person is coming from. How do we change that as privileged people? Yeah, I think just speaking into the hashtag, because it is one that confuses a lot of people. A lot of this stuff feels very much like Matrix, Blue Pill, Red Pill stuff. Um, that once you get it, you really can't unget it. And once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And it's, it's almost hard sometimes as somebody that's been doing some of the work and learning some of the stuff to remember that other people haven't necessarily made those connections and not to come from a place of arrogance or or look at me I'm, I'm work I've got it um but but really to journey slowly with other people because until you know something you don't know it and so there is a sense of like if you're living in South Africa now and don't know the things there, there is responsibility there is a, a chosen blindness in that but just going back to the hashtag if you think of attending someone's funeral and and somebody comes in shouting all deaths matter and has a photo of someone else that's also died it's just a completely inappropriate thing um, having a funeral to acknowledge um, or to remember, remember, tell stories about a person that is special to you that has died does nothing to delegitimize any other death. It's just saying that in this moment, this is the thing that takes focus. The, the pain of a Black Lives Matters hashtag is that we never needed a White Lives Matters hashtag because nobody ever really suggested that white lives don't matter. And so Black Lives Matter fits under the umbrella of all lives matter. Of course, all lives matter. They're never not saying that. But there's so much evidence um, in America for the three years that I was there. There was so much evidence week after week after week in the news headlines that black lives didn't matter. That made black people feel, actually, we shouldn't have to say this, but it feels like we have to say black lives matter because it feels like they don't. And historically, yeah, we can just dive into that. Um, but you're asking about how, how can we... How do we educate ourselves? How do we see it differently? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the easiest things is just do the work and don't expect your black friends to educate you because we do that a lot. Um, I, I finally get to the point where I realize that I need to do some work. And so I go to my black friends, tell me how not to be racist. And so they've spent their whole lives facing racism. And now on top of that, they've got to do the work of educating white people. And so that is just lazy. Um, there are enough books and articles and things out there that if you are genuine about doing the work, it's actually very easy to do. Uncle Google will help you in a minute. One thing that you can share the link of later, but but pe people are asking this question, they're asking it genuinely, and they were, they felt like they were getting shut down or shot down or whatever. 
um, because it feels really insensitive to people that have been doing the work. But, but people are genuinely saying, what can I do? And so I compiled a list, it might be two years ago now, of 40 tips for white people that are genuinely asking, but what can I do? So we can share that link later. And those are just 40 ideas. It's not, it's not exhaustive. But there are, like I said, um, read the Robert Sabuque and Steve Biko book. That will help give you a basic, basic education. Um, another thing that Val and I have found really helpful and probably a lesson or a challenge we got in the States was start reading people who don't look like you. And so typically when I grew up, I never ever once said, let me go and read an old white male's book. I never said that. I never thought that. But if you looked at my book list, most of the books would be old, middle-aged or middle-aged to old white Christian males, because that's what I was interested in. And so by recognizing that, I can start to go, I'm going to start reading books written by women. I'm going to start reading books written by people of color. Um, I'm busy reading a book at the moment by a guy called Richard Twiss called Saving the Gospel from the Cowboys. He was a Native American guy. And so I'm getting a perspective that no white guy would be able to give me. And so it's really about if I, if I tend to stick with the people who think like me, I'm going to, we talk about echo chambers. So if everyone on, on my Facebook are the people that, that forward the things I have, that agree with the things I have, I'm never going to be challenged. I'm never going to learn. And so start putting yourself into spaces and reading is an easy one. Find blog posts, find podcasts that are being done by people that don't look like you and you will start to learn different things. Um, I think another huge one, when I turned 45 years ago, my birthday party, we'd just come back from the States, so it was literally connected to people I'd known from three years before that, but but entirely white. I don't think we had um, a person of color there. And last year, this year, my birthday party, which is in January, it helps that I do it with uh, my friend McClutzy because he's my birthday twin. But, but it's a complete diverse range of people. And so for the last five years, we've been intentional about investing in the lives of people who don't look like us. And if all your people are white, it can start to feel a bit token to go and get a black friend. And so it's something that needs to be navigated well. Like you're not getting a black friend just so you have a black friend. You're getting a black friend because you realize your life is full of white people and that you're missing out and, and that there's a lot to learn from each other and from people that don't look like us. And so one of the ways we do that simply is by, at the end of the year, Val and I get together and we, we make a list. Who are some of the people we want to hang out with next year? And we make a list of maybe 15 key people. And it's not saying we don't hang out with other people. But then when it comes to having dinner, we will invite people from that list. Um, when it comes to, to having a thing, those are the top people that we want to start hanging out with. And just making sure those lists of people are diverse. So older people, um, people from different backgrounds, even people of different faiths or that come from different countries, um, but especially um, people of different color. We start spending more time with them. Friendships and, and deeper relationships will develop. And so a lot of this stuff is, is just intentionality, just making the moves. But reading feels like an easy one or listening or watching. There's some amazing movies that have come out um, in America, particularly dealing with some of those stuff. My favorite one is probably, I think it's called Brain Spotting. I always mix it up. It's between blind spotting and, and brain spotting, but I think it's brain spotting. Um, and they're just movies that deal with these. Another one is The Hate You Give. Easy way to spend two hours and just educate yourself a little. Just really listen, just really learn. And yeah, I mean, for white people, one the, the best things we can do is listen, just stop talking. I wrote something about that this morning, that we tend to dominate the microphone. We tend to dominate the, the speaking spaces. Just sit in the back and just commit for the next year. I'm just going to listen. I'm just going to learn. I'm just going to let other people speak. And I'm not going to take the mic.
that's easier said than done for some of us. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's um, let's have another conversation, and because there's another word out there that gets thrown around a lot that I think it's worth talking about. It's racist, racism. Um, when am I a racist? When am I do? You know, when I laugh at the joke at work, does it make me a racist? What is? How do you define that? Yeah, I was giving that some thought this morning because you kind of shared the, the question with me before. And this is something I thought, which might be a little, I don't know if it's controversial, it's just weird, but this is, this is just how I was processing it. I, I don't like, I don't super like the idea of calling someone a racist. Um, just like if somebody, if somebody kills somebody, I, I like to think of them as a person that's killed somebody rather than a murderer. Because once we do the label, there's a sense of identity. Um, but I think once somebody kills 20 people, I'm a little more happy to call them a murderer. Um, so this thing with racism, I'm 45. I grew up in an apartheid era in a system that was really a good system in terms of how it was put together. Evil, evil system in terms of what it meant, but really well done. For, for achieving the evil they wanted to do, apartheid was an amazing system. And so to think that I could grow up through that and and not in some ways have um, become racist or have racist ideas or thoughts or mindsets, that would be an absolute miracle. And maybe there are some people that did it, but I think all of us have some form of racism in us. Yeah, I've heard you say that you're a recovering racist. Yeah. Yeah. And even like even that term, I'm, I'm happy with, but I'm, I mean, I'm kind of moving away from that in a sense now when I'm saying like I'm a recovering person. Well, I'm a person that's recovering from the racism within them, but I, I'm I'm actually fine with being a recovering racist because I think there was so much in me. But I think when somebody when somebody pursues that stuff, when somebody holds on to those ideas and isn't willing to budge, then I'm kind of more happier with calling them a racist. But I think once somebody's on a journey away from that stuff, and maybe maybe it's semantics, maybe it doesn't matter too much, but I think all of I think what's helpful is to know that all of us have racism in us. And when we think of the racist as the bad person, then it can be easy to distance ourselves from it. I'm not a bad, I'm not really a bad person, so I can't be a racist. So therefore there's no work to be done in me. And it's kind of this whole like it's either that or it's that. But but most of us are probably somewhere along the middle lines. We we're not completely free of racism. We are not absolutely hating people of other races and wanting to kill them. And so somewhere on that continuum, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. It's like the whole men are trash label. We hate hearing it. I don't think I'm trash, but I know absolutely that there is trash in me that needs to be worked on. And so I think it's along those lines. Another level that I think has made it really complicated in South Africa is that there's an academic definition of racism that is very strongly linked to power and so the idea of racism from an academic perspective as 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 far as i understand it is that racism can only occur if you have the power like white people had the power to be able to oppress black people there's systems and structures put in place that is racism and so because black people have never had that power over white people around the world black people can't be racist and so i understand it from that perspective i think there's there's so much truth in that but I think when black people say we can't be racist, without understanding that definition, it becomes really tricky, problematic, confusing. Because we, we with the xenophobia attacks in the country, we, we, can, we see that there have been black people that have had, hated other people of other cultures. We, we've seen black people that hate white people. Um, there definitely is that sense. And if you say I'm not racist, it feels like you're saying, oh, we can't hate somebody of another race. And so a better term 
when you're dealing with the academic idea of racism is prejudice because everyone can be prejudiced against each other. But I think it helps because you often have two people facing each other with the different definition of racism. And so I think most of us growing up had that idea that if I hate someone else of a different color, that's racism. And then you meet someone that is holding on to a system structures idea. You both are saying two different things. And actually, if you sat down and, and opened them up, you probably do agree on what you're saying. But often a line like black people can't be racist or you as a black person are racist, that shuts down the conversation. And so I think that the fact that we've got the same word meaning two different things has been quite confusing for a lot of people. Okay, let's just, you got a little more time? You okay? All yeah, right. yeah, I've got, I've got okay. all the time you need. So talk about the role of the church in this whole area of justice, because so often we hear what you alluded to later, that this is a social gospel. It's like extra credit work, you know? So what do you think the role of the church is and where does the church need to be moving in these areas? Sure. <laughs> um, I, I guess it would be fair to say I have a love-hate relationship with the church. I love the idea of church. I love God's plan for church. I think church is the answer. But especially in Cape Town, which is where I live, um, I'm... I think it's fair to say I'm thoroughly disappointed, frustrated um, with a large amount of the church. There are two times in, in recent, probably like 20 years, South African history where I've been excited about the church in the biggest of ways. The first was, I think it was 2007, the first spate of xenophobic attacks, where time and time again on the news, you would hear of churches opening themselves up for foreigners to go and live. One of the churches that is quite near me, that I think doesn't do a lot of stuff for social justice. I heard the other day that they opened up their church for seven weeks or something like that. And so for me, that was an incredibly exciting time to be part of the church. I could be proudly church because we were leading the way and, and we really were. Um, and I think just in terms of this last Sunday, last week when all this stuff was going down in South Africa, um, we had xenophobia attacks on the one side and we, we had to look at, at violence towards women. I, I posed a question to the church saying that I would be thoroughly disappointed if Sunday happened and everyone just did business as usual. And and I was thoroughly, I'm not, I would say I was, I was surprised in a way, but I think I was thoroughly encouraged and built up and excited by the fact that so many churches in terms of the gathering on a Sunday actually changed things. I heard of churches that, that were mid-series that stopped the series to focus on gender-based violence and that, that feels unheard of. And so... I think there are spaces where, where we've just shown that's what church is. That's not church being good. That's church being church. And I think a lot of the rest of the time, we what, what would I say to the church? Catch up. Because we tend to arrive to these things very late. And for those, those people that are struggling with this theologically, I feel like love your neighbors yourself is pretty clear. We could leave it there. But I think Matthew 25, story of sheep and the goats, where Jesus is talking about the marginalized. And when you refuse to do this stuff, and he lists a bunch of things. And I don't think... The bunch of things that he lists is an exclusive list. I think those were the marginalized people at his time. Who are the marginalized people in our time? And it would definitely be people that, like foreigners from other African countries, it definitely would be women and children, definitely would be LGBTQI um, group and, and various others that we can find. But, but specifically in South Africa, even now to this day, the marginalized are firstly black people, and then colored and Indian people, um, people and other people of color that might be in the country, 
the way that the money in this country operates still, the way the land is divided still, the way job opportunities are still divided is very white heavy. And so as a Christian, if I'm taking Matthew 25 seriously and looking out for those who are considered as the least of these, I can't not have an eye on race, on unity, on diversity, on sanitation on all the issues that kind of come with that and and so i don't know how it's possible to be honest with the bible and and hold a view that says social justice is extra credit as i think your definition is exactly how people see it well thank you this has been incredibly enlightening it is great to chat with you i love your passion and your energy it really is fantastic how do people follow you how do they get in touch with you give me some idea there yeah so the easiest is probably my webpage which is brettfish.co.za i'm busy working through a series on 40 tips for men at the moment um which i interrupted another series that i was doing on 40 tips for parents and so both of those i just kind of restarted rebooted the parent one today so those are running concurrently and then every time i get to five tips i group them in a blog post so you can read them in kind of manageable bites but the, the, the blog post I alluded to, if you go to my blog and you click or you do a search for what can I do and um, find the 40 tips for white people, which I've sent you the link for, so we can maybe maybe add that in, in the description. That's a really great place to start. They are very practical tips. Um, and it's just like, how do I get my foot wet? How do I start doing some stuff? And then I'm on Facebook, Breadfish Anderson, and most other media social media, you can find me usually at Breadfish A. So Instagram, Twitter, some of the times I'm more funny and silly and weird than others. Uh, Facebook tends to have a more kind of serious issue focused thing alongside um, funny memes and gifs and things like that. But those are probably the safest ways to follow me. I wouldn't try doing it out, out cool. in the world. I'll put all those links in the show notes so people can click on them and find Excellent. You. Thanks. But thank you so much for being a part of this. I really appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Thanks for the conversation. So there you have it. That was so challenging and enlightening, at least for me. I hope it was for you as well. All the links are in the show notes, including the two books that he mentioned early in the podcast. Brett mentioned that the day we recorded this interview was the anniversary of the death of Steve Biko, who was one of the great voices of the struggle in South Africa back in the 1970s. Steve was basically beaten to death in his prison cell by the apartheid regime on September 12th, 1977. So in honor of that, I want to leave you with a quote of his. In time, we shall be in a position to bestow on South Africa the greatest possible gift, a more human face. May we continue to pray and work toward that goal in South Africa and in all parts of our world. Shalom.